Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. A maddening descent into jealousy and rage. Join LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director, James Conlon, as he explores the drama, the history, and of course, the music of Verdi's Otello. See Otello now through June 4th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. I am James Conlon, Richard Seaver music director of the Los Angeles Opera. I am delighted to have this opportunity to share some of my thoughts on Verdi's towering work, premiered in 1887, when the composer was 73, after he had seemingly been retired and had not written a work for the theater in 16 years. It is, of course, based on one of William Shakespeare's great tragedies, Othello, probably written in 1603. The play's poignant story still reverberates today after 400 years, just as Verdi's opera does more than 135 years after its first hearing. Like many great works, its impact is immediate and requires no previous experience or contact with the composer. But its real significance and genius become more fully apparent when viewed in context. I recall my own first hearing of Otello, I think I was 13 years old, when I barely understood a word of Italian or anything about life. I was literally overwhelmed by the power of the music. For those who might not yet be familiar either with Verdi's Otello or Shakespeare's Othello, reading through a quick summary of the story would be extremely useful, either on the Los Angeles Opera website or any of the many internet entries. It is classical literature in the best and every sense of the word, and for me, a must. It fulfills the precepts of the ancient Greek tragedy. A protagonist hero a man or woman of great importance and outstanding personal qualities falls from the heights through a combination of a fatal flaw and or circumstances outside of his or her control. Otello, a northern African man of color, 
highly respected and valued as a military hero in the all-powerful 15th century Republic of Venice, marries a beautiful young aristocratic woman, usually pronounced Desdemona in Shakespeare, but pronounced Desdemona in Verdi. Otello's downfall will be engineered by the machinations of an evil genius, Iago, a lower-ranking standard-bearer who perceives and plays on Otello's hidden weaknesses and manipulates him and all around him to an ultimately destructive end. The tragedy plays out on the eastern Mediterranean island of Cyprus, a contested border of the Christian West and the Muslim East. Verdi's lifelong love of Shakespeare had led him to an early groundbreaking rendering of Macbeth in 1847, which actually preceded most theatrical productions of the original play in Italy, and a revision of Macbeth for the Paris Opera in 1865. He attempted several times to set King Lear, but abandoned it, tantalizing the imagination and inciting Verdi lovers' regrets. He returned to Shakespeare, combining the Merry Wives of Windsor with parts of Henry IV, Part I, to produce Falstaff at the age of 80. In so doing, he departed from his lifelong production of more than two dozen melodramas and tragedies to break new musical and theatrical ground with a comedy of which he had made only one failed attempt as a young man. Taken together, Verdi's final two operas, Otello and Falstaff, represent a cultural monument, the crowning achievement of Italy's greatest 19th century genius, the zenith of Italian opera. It is clear to all who know the Italian repertory well that this was the logical conclusion of more than 50 years of compositional development. Their very perfection and preeminence are unsurpassed and created both a challenge and an impasse for the Italian theater. His partner in crime, so to speak, was the Italian composer, librettist, poet, and journalist, Arrigo Boito. As a composer, he is best known for his two operas, Mephistofele, another operatic attempt to capture the genius of Goethe's Faust, and Nerone, about the Roman emperor, of whom it was said, he fiddled while Rome burned. But his greatest mark on the operatic history was as a writer, the librettist whose collaboration with Verdi is as significant as Lorenzo da Ponte with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart and Ugo von Hofmannsthal with Richard Stahl. Boito was 20 years Verdi's junior. As a younger man, he and some of his literary circle were harshly critical of the older preeminent Italian composer. But fences were mended, and at the prodding of Giulio Ricordi, the composer's publisher, Verdi auditioned Boito by engaging him to help him revise Simone Boccanegra. The test was passed, and Boito, in the course of time, 
wrote two of the opera world's greatest librettos, not just translating Shakespeare, but fashioning works into an operatic form that was as convincing as the original plays. Verdi's Otello, like the Roman god Janus, looks forwards and backwards. Let me try to clarify what I mean. Verdi inherited the traditional bel canto form with the beauty and elegance and refinement bequeathed by Rossini, Bellini, and Donizetti. In the course of his long life, he gradually reformed Italian opera, freeing it from the static, closed forms of the early 19th century, the predominance and just as often the abuse of vocalism and the tyranny of the prima donna. His inexhaustible search for dramatic subjects and musical dramatic values, his liberation of the orchestra from the role of accompaniment, and his vast and impartial humanity constant challenged and pushed the boundaries of the state of operatic composition. That lifelong process culminated in the composition of these two Shakespearean masterworks. Most opera lovers, and even many music lovers, who don't prefer Italian opera, readily recognize the greatness of Otello and Falstaff. Very often, the same persons who disparage Italian opera in general concede that these two operas, taken together with the Requiem, assure Verdi's immortality and stature in the pantheon of classical composers. Much is made today, often to a fault, of assessing the novelty of works in their historic context as a measure of their intrinsic value and of their substance. Paradoxically, Otello and Falstaff, while breaking some new ground, provoking challenges and inspiring the next generation to propose a new aesthetic, represent, in my mind, a perfect blend of logical conclusions of the dramatic procedures from the best and the new.
Shakespeare was read but not produced on stage in Italy until after Verdi premiered his Macbeth in 1847. No composer so consistently went to the edge writing political subversion in the early so-called Risorgimento operas. No other dared, as he did in his middle years, to create operas about society's outsiders and anti-heroes portraying an outcast Roma woman, Il Trovatore, a hunchbacked buffoon, Rigoletto, and a courtesan, La Traviata, as protagonists. He insisted on his own embellishments and cadenzas to prevent singers from making up their own and misappropriating his music only eventually to eliminate most vocal theatrics from his vocabulary. He perfected the scene and the aria, the cabaletta, the orchestral preludes, later to abandon all of them. He brought political drama to the stage, Macbeth, La Battaglia di Legnano, I Vespri Siciliani, Don Carlo, Simon Boccanegra, and experimented with epic drama, La Forza del Destino. Through his gradual abandonment of closed forms, for example, arias, duets, choruses that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, with full stop, applause-provoking endings, he grew to favor an uninterrupted dramatic flow. The aria or individual scene is no longer a common currency. It is now the entire act that is the basic unit. He transferred much of the musical substance to the orchestra developing a declamatory lyrical style of recitation from the singers. The centrality of the orchestra makes it an equal partner to the singers and the conduit of the drama. Let's quickly listen to some examples of how he invigorates near vestigial forms with a new life. First an excerpt from Otello, then interspersed with some earlier examples for comparison. The Storm The Storm had been around a long time in the 19th century including a thunderous debut in the symphonic world in Beethoven's 1808 Pastoral Symphony. Passing through Rossini, first in the Barber of Seville in 1816. And then Rossini's William Tell in 1829, where you can identify lightning in the upper woodwind instruments, wind in the strings, and thunder in the brass and timpani.
bear to use similar elements here in the Witch's Heath in Act One of the 1847 Macbeth. Then, several years later, in 1851, he added the chorus as wind in constructing Rigoletto's final act around a storm culminating in this orchestral downpour. Otello's storm seems like the end of the world, a cosmic event. In fact, there is no question that his experience in writing the Requiem 13 years before, and especially the famous Dies Irae, had borne fruits. That now transforms into... And now the love duet. Almost every Italian opera throughout the 19th century has one, if not several. Here is a beautiful middle period example from Rigoletto, complete with cadenza. And here is the love duet in its last great Verdian iteration, the act one love duet between Otello and Desdemona, where it achieves the sublime. Ferdinand Boito still found a way to include a perennial favorite in the scheme of Act I, the drinking song, or Brindisi. Here is an earlier Shakespearean example from Macbeth in 1847.
and the ever-popular Libiamo from La Traviata. Libiamo, Libiamo negli editonici che la bellezza infiora e la fuggevo l'ora si nebriamo tutta. Now listen to the first act of Otello, where it serves Iago's scheming as he proposes a toast and prods his enemy, Cassio, to drink. The drinking song eventually breaks down into a street brawl designed by Iago to interrupt Otello and Desdemona's tranquility as they celebrate their marriage and his victory. The giuramento now, or swearing of an oath, fundamental in early Verdi operas such as Hernani and Rigoletto. It reaches an apex at the end of Act Two, as Otello, susceptible to Iago's innuendos, now believes Desdemona unfaithful. Together they swear vengeance. It culminates both the tradition of mostly male characters invoking heaven to wreak vengeance and Verdi's musical and dramatic art. The concertato is the point, usually midway in the opera, at which 19th century Italian composers gather the entire cast of characters and chorus to sing together in a quasi-static moment. It has a long history in Verdi's operas. He was always ambivalent and troubled about its presence, sometimes omitting or minimizing it. But he delivers a minor masterpiece in the third act of Otello, combining the majestic triumph of the Venetian fleet with Otello's public breakdown, Desdemona's humiliation, and Iago's triumph. He serves both the formal requirements of the complete ensemble without sacrificing the dramatic forward motion. First, we hear it in its majestic climax, which will be interrupted by Otello's very public mental breakdown. But Verdi had made a radically new turn to prepare that climax. He explains in an 1889 letter to Boito, quote, In the concertato, there can be no dramatic truth or effect if you don't isolate Iago completely. 
His words, not his voice, dominate everything, and beneath them you hear an indistinct murmur. We now hear, and we can see, Iago scheming, first with Otello, and then with another instrument of his bidding, the elderly, unsuccessful Venetian suitor of Desdemona's affection, Rodrigo. The enrichment of the orchestra and the symphonic development of Otello and Falstaff owe greatly to Verdi's study of Beethoven and arguably to Wagner, although how much is still a heated question, and partially to the growing interest in Milan for symphonic music. Every opera after the 1860s shows progressive development. The orchestration of Otello has already integrated the lessons of Don Carlo's Imperial Spain, Macbeth's Scottish Heath, Ocanegra's Genovese Council, Aida's Ancient Egypt, and the Requiem's Tiesire. Otello's Act One Storm, the love duet, the Cypriot's hymn of praise to Desdemona, Otello's soliloquy, the Willow Song, and the Ave Maria, and Act Four's contrabass solo, cite but a few examples have precedence, but no equals. Musically, the Act Three trio sets the stage for Falstaff. Here are three examples from that trio, in which Iago succeeds in obtaining Desdemona's handkerchief from Cassio and waving it in Otello's line of vision. In the protagonist's mind, this constitutes proof of Desdemona's infidelity. First, Iago and Cassio. Then Otello, in a state of high anxiety, as he observes from the distance. Iago produces the handkerchief, and Otello explodes. Iago compares the handkerchief to a cobweb, where hearts are ensnared, entangled, and die. He plans to ensnare Otello himself. The brilliant concluding section is a pretaste of Verdi's Falstaff. <laughs> Verdi pushed dramatic vocalism into a new territory while summing up the full flowering 
of the traditional vocal archetypes he had inherited and with which he molded the past. The time-honored formula of tenor and soprano as protagonist lovers opposed by a baritone remains unchanged on the surfaces. But deeper, there is a profound development in substance. In a letter to Boito, dated May 11, 1887, Verdi summarizes his vocal portrayal of the principles. Quote, Desdemona is a part in which the thread, the melodic line, never ceases from the first note to the last. Continuing in Verdi's words, just as Iago has only to declaim, snigger, and smirk. And still Verdi's letter, and just as Otello, at times the warrior, At times, the passionate lover. to the point of baseness. Now ferocious like a savage, Tello must sing and shout. So his daemona must always, always sing. The most striking vocal novelty is Otello himself. 
Portraying the protagonist lover as tenor is not new, of course, but the tenor as mature lover, as perhaps befits a composer in his 70s, is quite unique. Otello is Verdi's last great tenor role. The difficulty of performing this role is prodigious, and every successive generation has considered it at the limit of human abilities to master. Few in the opera's now long history could consistently hold the stage. Otello's only leading tenor successor is light and lyric, a turnaround of 180 degrees, the youthful Fenton in Falstaff, lovingly sculpted by an octogenarian composer who conjures up youthful love in a lyrical but unheroic defining manner. Tenor as poet, lover, and military all have their models, but none is a tragic hero in the classical Greek sense. But Verdi's portrayal of Otello as fatally flawed hero is the most demanding use of the dramatic tenor's full vocal and histrionic potential. Otello crowns Verdi's progressive stretching of the limits, and he stands as the tenor's apotheosis in the Italian operatic tradition. We first hear him at the height of his glory. follow him through his humiliation in Act 3, through his farewell to arms in Act 4. And finally, his tragic end. It is instructive to know that Verdi originally intended to call the opera Iago. This villain of all villains is fundamentally and completely evil, to a degree that he has no direct counterpart in earlier operas. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, the British poet and literary critics, famously described Iago as motiveless malignity. So inexplicable and mysterious are his ways. The totality of his evil sets him apart, 
Romantic 18th century interpretations of his character emphasized his demonic character to a new degree. And this played very well into Verdi's hands and Italy's Roman Catholic culture. Boito created a soliloquy, a text not drawn from Shakespeare, referred to as Iago's Credo. I believe in a cruel God who created me similar to himself and whom, in my wrath, I name. recasts the Catholic credo, profession of faith, into a demonic, nihilistic, and avowal of evil. From the baseness of a germ, or from an atom, I was born vile. I am wicked because I am a man and feel in me the mud of my origins. He continues, And I believe that man is a plaything of iniquitous fate from the cradle of the embryo to the worm of the grave. After so much delusion, death, la morte, e poi, e poi, and then, and then, death is nothingness. Heaven is an old wife's tale. The lower male voices as nemeses, or at least partially evil, goes back to the very roots of Italian opera, to the point of becoming a cliché at times in 19th century Italy. Iago is the apotheosis of Verdi baritones. His Verdian roots can be traced through portrayals of ambiguous, sometimes partially sympathetic perpetrators of tragedy from the very beginning of Verdi's creative life, Nabucco, for example, through the middle period, Rigoletto, Count di Luna, Father Gemont. When Iago stands in triumph with his heel on Otello's face at the end of Act Three, the orchestra emits a terrifying trill. 
Verdi had already employed the trill as an expression of evil in Simone Bocanegra, the work that directly precedes Otello. He personifies the villain Paolo, who prefigures Iago with a sardonic laugh as its tale. The winged lion is the symbol of St. Mark, patron saint of Venice. As the populace sings Otello's praises, Iago roars, who can prevent me from stepping on his face with my heel? And in response to the shouts of the populace, glory to the lion of Venice, glory al leon di Venezia, here is the lion, ecco il leone, Iago referring to Otello, who lies unconsciously face up the orchestra thunders Iago's sarcastic drill, and the curtain is brought down with terrifying force. Il mio Desdemona is the personification of feminine compassion. She has been distilled through over 40 years of sopranos, most of whom embodied various degrees of goodness, beauty, and generosity. She, despite her extreme youth, demonstrates an erotic maturity and sophistication and a greater degree of self-determination that belie her youth, both in Shakespeare and Verdi. She essentially only makes one mistake, that of insisting on advocating for her childhood friend, Cassio, and refusing to accept Otello's refusal for an answer. Whereas Otello is perhaps three-quarters author of his tragedy, and only one-quarter victim, she is only fractionally responsible for her fate, a tragic victim of circumstances and Iago's absolute iniquity. Desdemona's great scene in Act Four, which precedes the Ave Maria and her death, is introduced first by the orchestra through the soulful incantation of the English horn. Verdi's love and selective use of this instrument goes all the way back to 1842, when he first used it in Nabucco. It will have important iterations, including, for instance, in Macbeth, Rigoletto, and Don Carlo. Here is a particularly poignant use in Un Balo in Maschera.
Here is the English horn solo at the beginning of Act Four, preceding Desdemona's premonitions of her own death. Then the rendering of Shakespeare's Willow Song, with repeated refrain, salce, 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 the Italian word for the weeping willow. The English horn will echo the refrain. The prayer is another ubiquitous element in Italian melodramatic operas. The Ave Maria, set to music throughout classical music's history, has never been surpassed by the transcendent beauty and simplicity of Desdemona's prayer, in keeping with the sublime nature of her character. First, she recites the first verse in a manner which would reverberate with every member of the Italian public without exception. Then she articulates her prayer of petition to the Blessed Mary. Pray for the sinner, the innocent. Pray for the oppressed and the mighty who are equally suffering. Pray for those who bow their heads beneath outrage and evil destiny. She finishes, her voice floating upward towards heaven in a strikingly soft pianissimo. It is Verdi's favorite tonality in approximating heaven, A flat major. 
with which he commended Leonora's soul at the end of La Forza del Destino and the offertorio from the Requiem. First, let's hear the Requiem. And now we hear Desdemona. Followed by a short, exquisite postlude which speaks volumes. As she sleeps, Otello quietly enters her bedroom on the lowest note of the orchestra's range, breaking the mood and introducing a new motive, which will be heard in the final moments of the opera. This highly inventive use of the double bass section abruptly disturbs the heavenly light with quiet but menacing efficiency. The heavy death toll at the final curtain will have decimated the protagonist. Desdemona strangled by Otello's hand, Otello by his own blade, Emilia by her husband Iago's dagger, at least in Shakespeare, though not in Verdi, Rodrigo unseen in the dark of night by Cassio, whom he unsuccessfully attempted to murder at Iago's bidding. Iago's end is left unclear, in Shakespeare, he is wounded, arrested, and will presumably be tortured and possibly executed. In Verdi, he escapes, leaving him and the continuance and his motiveless malignity to persist indefinitely. The motive of the kiss, the symbol of the beautiful love between Otello and Desdemona, is sounded as Otello expires. In Shakespeare's words, I kissed thee ere I killed thee. No way but this, killing myself to die upon a kiss.
To summarize, no greater Italian operatic masterwork exists. And like many works of such stature, it is greater than the sum of all possible performances. Its majesty is not dependent on those who interpret it, despite all possible dramatic misadventures or vocal inadequacies, an honest performance of Otello should not fail because the opera itself is perfectly conceived and masterfully executed. Not a single note is superfluous, nor one less than inspired. Verdi was to the 19th century what Haydn was to the 18th. Both composers, blessed with long lives, constantly evolved throughout their years and wrote their greatest works at the end of their lives. Verdi left not only his own sublime works, but two that rightly can be considered the pinnacle of a now 400-year-old tradition born in Renaissance Florence. Claudio Monteverdi helped create that tradition and Giuseppe Verdi to perfect it. I'm James Conlon, the Richard Seaver Music Director of Los Angeles Opera, and I hope to see you at the opera soon. See Otello now through June 4th. Tickets are available at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Oh,